2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Connecticut has a rich history of oystering. Today on Where We Live, we'll trace the state's oystering past. We're going to start with the native Quinnipiacs who gathered oysters along the river, going into a titanic industry, all based in Long Island Sound. Coming up, we'll hear from the Sound School in New Haven about how Connecticut's defining history of oysters is taught, and how students' study work directly with these filter feeders. But first, we talk to the local amateur historian about what he calls lost history. Joining me now to take us back in time, he is on the phone, is Neil Barrow, an amateur historian who recently completed a manuscript on the New Haven Oyster Industry entitled Oyster Haven Lost. Neil, welcome to where we live.
1: Thank you, good morning and, and good morning to your audience.
2: And folks, our audience can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Neil, what inspired you to write a manuscript on oystering in New Haven and really show everybody that oysters were a big thing in New Haven, not just like a pizza or Yale or something like that, but oysters?
1: Absolutely. And it was hardly just New Haven. It's actually America. Um, wow. what inspired me was very, what inspired me was very simple. I had lived in town for almost 20 years. I, I went back to uh, school, took a course on us maritime history. I had to write a, uh, a grad paper and I picked the topic of, so what happened to the oyster industry in New Haven? How, how come I lived in this town so many years and you never hear anyone talk about it. You, many people can spend their whole life in and around New Haven and not go down to the Quinnipiac or out to the Harbor. Uh, the, the Quinnipiac and Fairhaven was the predominant oystering area, but certainly Oyster Point, and it's called Oyster Point for a reason, later City Point by the New Haven Harbor. This was, uh, just a major, major business. The, uh, the, the Native American, uh, that the indigenous people, I should say, the indigenous people were profoundly critical to the story. And, um, uh, absolutely, Frankie, it was a massive business. Um, perhaps reaching its peak in the late 19th century.
2: And I want to talk about the indigenous population and how important they were to oystering. But before I do that, we're talking about Oyster Point. We're talking about the Quinnipiac River. We're talking about Fair Haven and the harbor area. Mm-hmm. The word of the day, Neil, is estuary. Why are oysters in such an abundance in this area?
1: So an estuary is a combination of salt water and fresh water. And uh, New Haven, New Haven was extremely fortunate to be a a repository of such oyster abundance, the indigenous people, the Quinnipiac, were quite helpful, uh, literally, uh, to the uh, Europeans, the English settlers, and showed them how to to, um, catch them, if that's the term. It's almost an oxymoron. Uh, they, uh, They used their feet, they used their hands. That's how abundant the oysters were, particularly, obviously, at low tide. And um, uh, it was an opportunity that uh, would help feed people, and eventually there was so much they would learn how to store them. And one thing led to another, and a mercantile process started to develop as well. Unfortunately for the indigenous people, they will leave the area probably within a hundred and forty, fifty years by and large of their encounter with the English settlers. Uh, they picked the wrong side in King Philip's War, mm-hmm. and they they were highly susceptible to disease in their encounter with the Europeans.
2: And that, but there was a relationship there, as I understand it, with the with the with the colonizers, is that the the natives, the indigenous and in the population, showed them how to oyster. Is that is that how I have to understand? A hundred percent
1: correct, and, and and that is literally the case. Uh, and um, uh, without that enormous impact by uh, the Quinnipiac. Um, it, it, who knows whether the English settlers would have had the capacity to uh, uh, have even understood what the opportunity was. So it, it, it's a great tribute. And, and and one of the stories that emerges is that uh, Sleeping Giant, how does Sleeping Giant uh, uh, emerge? Well, supposedly Sleeping Giant, as the story told by the Quinnipiac, would love to eat oysters out of New Haven Harbor, but was was quite harsh to the human beings and was punished, and so therefore was turned into the sleeping giant we're so familiar with today.
2: Sleeping giant uh, on the Hamden-New Haven border, as I understand it.
1: Yes, the, at yeah, the state park. That's right. But everyone knows the outline of the shape of that figure, yes. but the Quinnipiac put a story to it that mentioned oysters, and I just liked it. So it's in the introduction of my uh, work.
2: (laughs) Hey, can you give our listeners a sense of how Central Oysters were really in the mid-1800s, like the scale and scope of the dish, and Connecticut's role, I guess, in defining that? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Frankie. It was just, just an enormous, it helped to build Fairhaven. Fairhaven was almost entirely dominated by oysters. Fairhaven went in and out of a relationship with the a growing town of New Haven, uh, it, it will spend some decades in an independent status will come back by the 1870s and stay there as part of, uh, the now city of New Haven. Uh, without question, the whole maritime trade is just so central to 19th century America. I think in the 21st century, we've really have lost sight that America in the 19th century was built upon her waterways her, her uh, oceans, rivers, harbors, and bays. And the oyster trade, as technology developed, as rail transportation improved, as the canning process improved, the oysters started going further and further inland. It became a massive business opportunity. And the now city of New Haven in the 19th century will just have two areas, again, along the harbor. It's called Oyster Point. It will then later be called City Point. And that will tell you how the role of the oyster reduces over time, but it's, but in Fairhaven along the Quinnipiac, literally there'll be dozens of oyster packing houses, and of the four largest oyster steamers in the world, three of them will be at in uh, Fairhaven along the Quinnipiac River.
2: And talking about Fairhaven, there's an iconic oystering boat born and bred there. And uh, my producer, Katie, and I got this part from the Mystic Seaport Museum. Uh, Before the 1820s, there were like dugouts and skiffs that were used for oystering. But then, and this is what I want to ask you about, developed here on The Sound in Connecticut, in Fairhaven, an evolution. What can you tell us about the Sharpie?
1: So the Sharpie, which is such a cool name, by the way, the Sharpie is actually developed in the 1840s by James Goodsell. And James Goodsell, his dad was in the oyster business. Uh, and, and the good sales, uh lived in Fairhaven and they, the Sharpies came in three sizes, uh, below 23 feet, 23 to 33 feet and 33 feet and larger. And, uh, there was a variation for, uh, City Point for Oyster Point. It, it, it had a different configuration by the bow. And, um, in Fairhaven, it was a little considered a little more sleeker. Uh, it could come either uh, single or double-masted, and, um, uh, but it was very much a Fairhaven invention. Or as I like to say, Fairhaven born and bred, and it was sold up and down the Atlantic out into the Gulf, and it actually had functionality as uh, a means of oystering until the early 20th century, but its story will be eclipsed in by the later 19th century by the Industrialization and the Second Industrial Revolution, which puts puts an emphasis on mechanical and steam dredging, and the Sharpie just wasn't big enough to handle that, and its production will be far far eclipsed by the gigantic steam uh, oyster steamers, which will also be disproportionately in New Haven and in Connecticut.
2: As you said earlier, so there
1: you go. It's it's a it's a great it's a great story of the Sharpie, and it's still. In the romanticized, idealized image of 19th century oystering, it's not the bulky steamer. It's the sleek little Sharpie that captures the imagination.
2: Oh, my God. I love the way that you put it at the end there. And if you keep listening, after you're done with us, we're going to have some guests that are going to talk about maybe a little revitalization project with the Sharpie, but I'll get to that later. I want to ask you in particular. And those
1: you, guys are great. I know those guys, and they're great.
2: The great sound <laughs> school folks that, that we'll be talking to in a little bit. But you talked about uh, oystering kind of going further inland, and at least, excuse me, not oystering, but people eating oysters. I think you have uh, menus throughout your manuscript to illustrate the popularity of this dish. How are people eating oysters in the uh, 1800s? What Do you have that, any kind of menus? That's or a fabulous uh, yeah.
1: question. I'm sorry. I'm, Frankie, that's such a fabulous question because there's, um, there's a website I quote from uh, Michigan State. Uh, I believe it's a grad student who compiled the data. How in 1871, now picture this, everyone can picture where Michigan is on the map, right? So in 1871, at one of their graduation exercises, the oysters came from the Atlantic coast all the way to Michigan, and they were still served fresh. And it was... Uh, you know n- not a casual process uh, the technology was always evolving refrigeration was always evolving but eventually not only were oysters being served in Michigan they were being served in, in the entire continentalization of of the United States the the rocky mountain states the dakotas um eastern oysters and in point of fact connecticut oysters and point of fact new haven oysters were being sent even to california because they were they took well to California waters, and um, the Californians were finding that their own native Pacific oysters were not breeding as well as they wanted. So, and that would be fifteen days going on railroads. And again, the technology had to evolve, but you had to make sure that the oysters were you know kept in a in a consumable fashion. And unfortunately, not, and not in every case were they able to have every load get there in a pristine uh, manner. But uh, it, it, it got better, and oysters eventually from Connecticut, uh, Connecticut oysters, at one point, Frankie, represented something close to 75% of all oysters imported uh, by the Europeans from America were coming from Connecticut.
2: Our listeners have listened to the history of oystering in the 1700s, the 1800s. We're going to move forward into the 1900s That's when the landscape uh, just muddies a little bit. We'll dig into Connecticut's... Quite quite literally. Yes. (laughs) We'll dig into uh, Connecticut's oyster industry, the issue of pollution and subsequent uh, regulation, with local historian Neil Barrow after a quick break, plus how the Sound School in New Haven has a hands-on approach to teaching this. You can join in on a conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter. At where we live.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Health Care.
2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. If you're listening, join us in the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at at Where We Live, and maybe you can talk to myself and our guide as we go back in time this hour to experience the lost history of New Haven's oyster industry. On the phone, Neil Barrow the amateur historian who recently completed a manuscript on the New Haven oyster industry titled Oyster Haven Lost I'm I'm calling you an amateur historian here I think that's a that's like an official kind of title but there's nothing amateur about the work that you do here and and this book that we have the the history of of oystering in Connecticut though It gets a bit complicated in the 1890s, and that's because of an infamous uh, contamination. I saw this in a newspaper article yesterday. Can you tell us, Mm -hmm. Neil, about the 1894 oyster epidemic of typhoid fever at Wesleyan University?
1: So, yeah, now picture in your head that in 1891, for example, the New York Times writes a major story comparing Connecticut oystering to the Chesapeake Bay, Virginia and Maryland. Mm. And essentially the bottom line is, if only you guys in Virginia and Maryland would follow what the guys in Connecticut are doing, you'd make a lot more money. This was the peak of the industry for Connecticut oystering and certainly for New Haven, which, which fair to say was the leader of Connecticut oystering at that time, certainly. And um, they're raking it. They're making lots of money. They're, the demand for oysters is off the chart, and um, by a, any measurement, they're just doing great. And and so, and so, imagine any business in any era is at the top of their game. And then there's this series of banquets at Wesleyan University. Six banquets altogether. Three will served cooked oysters. Three will serve raw oysters. Now, within 10 days of the banquet, upwards of 30 students, they're essentially all students except for, I believe, one faculty member, will take ill. Tragically, four of the students will die. Of those who simply take ill, several will be considerably incapacitated and miss the rest of the school term. The uh, Wesleyan will jump in almost immediately, uh, through Professor uh, Herbert Kahn and conduct an extensive investigation, a process of elimination, if it, if, as it were, to look at every food item on the menu and to eliminate what their or- origin was as a potential cause of the sickness. At first, they thought it was, might be water. They, they thought it might be milk. It turns out the one variable which was consistent was the oysters. Uh, Those who had eaten the cooked oysters had no sickness. Those that had eaten the raw oysters, about 25% of the students who ate the raw oysters took ill. And that ended up being the variable. Now, the New York Times, separately, uh, ironically in a way, the New York Times comes in, and says this is the first ever established contamination between oysters and sickness and or death. And germ theory, which had been very well established in Europe by this time, was lagging up a good number of years behind in America. And as you might imagine, the businessmen, the oyster businessmen were essentially saying that it was not us it couldn't be us you know they were not taking responsibility and the story was covered pretty extensively on a local basis i cover covered very heavily in my um writing but that it takes place at the peak of the industry it should have been a warning in the years to come year after year after year you turn the century year after year after year there's more linkage, there's more information, there's more investigation, there's more research uh, looking at, say, oystering in New York and New Jersey and the Long Island Sound, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and increasingly uh, contaminated oysters uh, caused by some form of pollution. Uh, remember, in the world of, of uh, you, it was either human, human waste yep. uh, pollution uh, right on, right from the banks of the Quinnipiac River, a very prominent dealer. Uh, his wife and, and, and a daughter had taken ill with typhoid. There had been a typhoid epidemic the month before in New Haven. And, um, uh, the contamination carried no odor. It carried, it carried, uh, no change of appearance. And the oysters were served and it really became a problem. And it took a good number of years and it was exacerbated by one thing, something very Connecticut-oriented, the oysters of the Long Island Sound would tend to produce a, uh, a greenish hue, right? A greenish hue on the oyster. It had no health impact, but it's just from a marketing point of view. It didn't look great. So they would take the oysters right before sending them to market and immerse them in shallow brackish water, say of the Quinnipiac River. The oysters, in some cases, if they were in any proximity of a sewer outfall, might uh, ingest pathogens. And then again, almost almost in a random luck of the draw kind of way, uh, some people would unfortunately develop uh, Ill- illness and/or and/or in some cases death. And that would become the first great wake-up call, which would not be listened to by the oyster in pre but,
2: march but, but earlier you talked about the Chesapeake region versus our region and, and, and the sound. As I understand Correct. it from listening to a, a previous interview you did with somebody, uh, this is about not having sewage treatment as you might have had in the Chesapeake region. Do I have it Right.
1: Okay, so, so, well, actually, again, in the context of a, well, just to be specific, right? Mm-hmm. You, you have it right as to your understanding, but in the context of this specific history, there is no real established sewage treatment in the 1890s. Baltimore okay. will be the first city in North America, and that is obviously under Chesapeake. Baltimore um, will be the first American city, and as the author uh, uh, says it, 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 they didn't do it to appease progressives. They did it to preserve their oyster industry. Uh, it will not be until the late 1930s that New Haven will actually develop a sewage treatment uh, plant. Ironically, right around the time of the 1938 hurricanes, which will utterly devastate the city point oyster industry. But New Haven had was one of the first cities to have a sewerage but not su- uh, waste treatment. And and un- unfortunately, to this day, uh, Bridgeport and New Haven are still finalizing their upgrades to their, their hybrid system of, of sewage treatment, which can create some issues.
2: As I understand it, even more than this 1894 oyster epidemic of typhoid fever at Wesleyan University in the winter Correct. of 1924, going into 25, I believe, and is, is it in New York City? there's a deadly episode of contamination there. More deadlier City? as I understand it.
1: Well, in, in fact, the worst uh, Frankie, the worst ever food-borne contamination in the history of the United States.: Wow, uh, it will be Chicago, New York and Washington, D.C. By the 1920s, the roaring 20s. Much of the trade has the, the once poor people's food of the 19th century, and also rich person's food too. That has now is now be really beginning to transition to the restaurants. And uh, oysters uh, from actually the New York side of the uh, Long Island Sound are sent off to restaurants in Chicago, restaurants in D.C., restaurants in New York City. The net result will be. 1,500 people will be hospitalized, 150 people will die, and it will, uh, essentially the Midwest of the United States will cease any uh, uh, taking of oysters from the Atlantic coast, the Chesapeake Bay, hundreds of miles from Connecticut, no one will even take Chesapeake Bay oysters, and the oystermen will go begging to the federal government saying, please, 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 we need real regulation, real oversight, real control. And not that there's any silver lining from that horrible tragedy, but a process of far more meaningful uh, implementation, regulation, and actual working together between uh, the industry and government will start setting standards that will dramatically improve uh the healthfulness of oysters taken out of waters
2: neil barrow giving us quite the tour of the new haven oyster industry at this uh, hour 888-720-9677-888-720 wnpr is a way you can reach us if you want to talk to us right now going forward what are what you talked about some regulation happening out of this, and, and then it, it really was necessary because, as you mentioned earlier, the, the hurricane of 38 just wiped out the rest mm-hmm. of whatever was left of that industry. So how, how, how did we move forward into today with some regulation and trying to limit pollution?
1: So, look, it's a very imperfect world, and, 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 and everyone knows that the challenges of climate change has impact on the water. Um, and uh, again, not to entirely slough over the point I made, you, 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 when there is very heavy precipitation, um, like for example, hurricane Sandy, right? We, yes. many of us remember that, um, they actually have to shut the shellfish beds. Okay. Because it there's concern that the waste treatment plants will be flooded. Therefore, well, the waste has to go into the sound for some period of time uh now again there's wonderful progress being made and everyone all the stakeholders in the industry and in academia all point to that progress uh, it, it, but still um uh it, it is a reality in very very heavy precipitation um but um it, but going forward you you're dealing also with um, vibrio is, is is when the when the water temperature uh, rises that produces its own uh, uh, bacterial issues. And I believe in 2014, there were 20 people who were hospitalized after uh, eating oysters. I don't, I, yeah, I I don't know that there was any, you know, they were sick, but then they, they, they recovered. But Vibrio is, Vibrio can be very serious, can be life threatening in some
2: cases. But, but this is a great point I want to touch on because we'll see when we have big rain events that will cover like bacteria levels are up in, in, in the Connecticut river. I don't know if yep. you know this, but back then, when you had the incident of 1980, or excuse me, 1894, and then 1924 going into 1925, is this really happening? There's any issues you have with contamination? Is this more likely to happen when you have a, a major weather event? It wasn't well, yeah, necessarily happening absolutely. all the okay. time. Okay. I guess so, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Well, in the regular, fortunately, there's very wonderful cooperation and regulation, and uh, you you have a very active state uh process here in Connecticut uh and and a, an a industry that has every motivation to have the best possible controls right so they shut the shellfish beds um uh, human nature is such unfortunately that on rare occasion there will be some effort by somebody to kind of contravene Whatever regulation is established, uh, that does is certainly not limited to the oyster industry. Uh, but to broad, more broadly answer the question that you had asked previously, and, and I, I didn't address it, I want to. The, the oyster industry yes, in Connecticut, and, and it really transitions from a New Haven, my, even my story, which is very New Haven-centric, it transitions to Connecticut. Because by and large, the industry has collapsed to the point where you no longer have those dozens and dozens of Fairhaven and, and City Point operators. And so now you have some very enterprising, highly risk taking people. Uh, Hillary Bro- Bloom and his twin brother, Norman uh, Bloom Sr., they will do remarkable work in helping to resurrect the industry. The Bloom name carries forward in multigenerational oystering on both sides of the twins' families, and um, they are quite the quite the important players in the industry.
2: And um, Cops Island oysters, uh, it, I would it, imagine. It,
1: well, and balloons. by the way, they actually own they own ground, they own oyster grounds in New Haven. Uh, Norman Jimmy Bloom, Cops Island own oyster grounds in New Haven Harbor. They own some oyster uh, uh, land right adjoining the Quinnipiac River. And every so often, those gigantic mounds of oyster shells, they're taken out into, dumped into the Long Island Sound, and they serve as a substrate for spawning.
2: Neil, we we got one minute left, so our listeners, I want to give them a glimpse of what we're talking about here. Talk about this briefly. They can go with you right on the Quinnipiac to the place where oysters grow in abundance in Connecticut. For a walking tour, as I understand it,
1: well, I've done I've done walking tours, um, but let, uh, but there's nothing nothing scheduled imminently in that regard. And I, I just have to say though that we had about fifty people on a walking tour last fall, and um, some of them had zero background or even interest in the specific topic of oysters. But you know what? They began to see a connection. To the world around them, and they got interested. So I, I, th- I think oysters are a remarkably important and interesting Connecticut topic. I really do. And,
2: and really quickly, where can they find out about a tour if it does pop up?
1: Well, I, actually, there is absolutely nothing on the books right now, so there's nothing I really can add on, on that. But um, Thank you for that. I, I, I just, I just hope that. There is a growing interest in in the topic. It's a part of their history of where they're living in many cases.
2: Neil Barrow, thank you so much. The manuscript is entitled Oyster Haven Lost. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Frankie, and have a great morning.
2: Coming up, we'll hear from the Sound School in New Haven, where students encounter oysters and other filter feeders in the wild. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. If you're listening, you can join us on the conversation 888 9677 on our conversation about oystering. 888-720-WNPR. Call us now or leave us a nice line on Facebook and Twitter. We have a guest actually right now calling us on the line, Crystal from New Haven, who actually lives on the Quinnipiac River. What do you got this morning, Crystal?
3: Hey, good morning. Can
2: you hear me? I can hear you. Good morning, Crystal. Okay, good morning. Um... Oh, we have a little bit of a, of a hold situation there. Can you still hear us, Crystal? We have an issue with the phones. I apologize for that, our, our guests here. We had to drop a call or to bring in back another one. Crystal, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes,
3: I'm there, um, but there's some really loud
2: we're gonna We're going to drop your call for now and then try to get back with you, Crystal. Again, this is where we live from Connecticut Public. I'm Frankie Graziano. If you're listening, I want to know if you learned from Connecticut's rich maritime history in school. The Sound School in New Haven, founded in 1981 with a mission of centering hands-on curriculum and incorporating the harbor, marine science, and oceanography in a, quote, educational alternative to the large comprehensive high schools in the city. Here to discuss this now in the local maritime industry and how it's taught and the important role oysters play are tim weisel he's a former aquaculture coordinator at the sound school and a historian of the connecticut shellfishing industry and peter solomon an aquaculture coordinator at the sound school how are you guys this morning
3: Uh, very good good. thanks for having me frankie
2: thank you guys for having us on i want to remind folks that they can join the conversation 888-720-9677 before i get to you guys i want to try one more time with our guest that we had from new haven crystal and she just hung up so i apologize for that i guess we tried but nonetheless i have tim weisel and peter solomon from the sound school guys uh tim i want to ask you first we had you on the line listening to neil barrow who wrote oyster haven lost tim you're another expert in oystering on long island sound what were your impressions of what neil had to say
3: i I think what neil has done over over a period of years is, is remarkable. It's, it's a, it's an exclusive story of the oysters of America in America and broadens the perspective of how the oyster industry was in the United States at the time. It's a wonderful history. Um, it, once you start, you can't put it down. It, it is, it is truly remarkable.
2: I want to I wanna thank you for commenting on what Neil had to say, but wanted to thank our caller that we had earlier that we couldn't get on, Crystal from New Haven. She did leave us a comment so I could read it for you. She says she lives on the Quinnipiac River, and she says you can see the oysters at low tide. She has a rowing shell that she takes out sometimes. She has to be careful not to hit them with her oars. And at one point, her husband was growing oysters, uh, said that they were able to eat them right out of the river. What's so unique about sound school what's so unique tim about the way the area's oystering tradition is taught something like that uh, crystal or somebody that lives on the river might see these oysters what's so unique about well, the history you guys teach down there
3: right and i think you need to look at uh, at what what happened in the haven because the haven certainly is a a water quality success story uh going back to the clean water act um and the haven had turned its back on the harbor so to speak it, it it lost a lot of its um, acreage to, to pollution, and I think Neil talked about that earlier. But uh, George Foote, the founding um, principal of the Sound School, uh, didn't give up on the harbor. He, he was also a historian, and he said we should let the young people lead the way, and I think that's that's exactly what we're seeing now.
2: I want to talk now to Peter Solomon. I want to bring you in here, the aquaculture coordinator at the Sound School. I want to talk about something like 13 giant cement structures lined with seeds. What are reef balls? Uh,
0: uh, that's a great question. Um, I was introduced to reef balls actually by Tim. Uh, I was very fortunate when I started at Sound School 15 years ago uh, to be surrounded by some veteran educators who could teach me that mindset of let the kids lead the way. Uh, so Tim planted that seed. Uh, so to say, about the interest in reef balls and use in oyster restoration. Um, And me and my environmental students uh, took over from there. We reached out to the Reef Ball Foundation, who had generously donated all the materials we needed to construct our own reef balls. And so these are the ones we make are mini bay balls. They're about two feet tall, two feet wide. And they are these cement dome structures designed to kind of mimic natural bottom topography to help enhance our habitat. Uh, and so our students learned how to build those. Uh, they figured it out. There was some trial and error. We have a reef ball graveyard behind the Aww. school from some of their <laughs> failed efforts. The but that is, <laughs> that's how we learned. Um, so the kids really did all of that work. They figured out how to construct these uh, cement domes. They partnered with our folks in our aquaculture and um, fish production lab. So students in there work with staff to spawn oysters. And the kids lead the way they do this oyster spawn. And so we partnered with them. We put some of our reef balls in our tanks, which was quite a project of maneuvering. And then we uh, put some oyster larvae that our students spawned in there with them for about 10 days. And that just really increased the likelihood of getting oysters to settle and set on the reef ball. And so as an oyster goes through its development, they're kind of this free floating larvae and they become a spat as we call it they settle and they attach to a surface that they're gonna spend the rest of their lives on. So we wanted to get a nice jumpstart to our oyster reef restoration project that we are doing right off of our coast here. So the students, oh, sorry, go ahead. And
2: you do this in in partnership, I I believe, with a major university, right? There's a a sea grant that makes this possible.
0: Uh, we've grant. had a Sorry. tremendous, yeah, tremendous amount of support um, and partners uh, from NOAA and the um, the Marine Fisheries Group in Milford has been incredibly supportive in helping us develop our monitoring protocols. We've gotten grants from um, the Long Island Sewer Fund. And right now we're partnering with Yale University to kind of expand on the pilot project these students started in the harbor into a fully real- realized uh, restoration project. So we're working under a Yale Planetary Solutions Grant uh, with Dr. James Nickel and Dr. Peter Raymond.
2: And you don't want to stop at 13. There's got to be 100 that you're hoping to install on the sound, sound correct?
0: (laughs) Exactly. So the 13 kind of became our pilot project. It was, can we do it and will it work? And the results from that, um, some of my students recently presented on. uh, They were at a New England uh, Estuary Research Society uh, um, meeting, and my students presented on kind of looking back over five years on the ecological succession that occurred on our pilot project. The success we had with the growth of the oysters, but also the impacts it had on local biodiversity. Um, And comparing that to a control site that didn't receive the treatment from those students, um, we really are able to see that if we build this reef, we can really have that positive impact um, through habitat creation on the overall ecosystem. So we're targeting, like you said, actually 100 structures to go from our small little pilot project to hopefully a self-sustaining reef over time.
2: Earlier, I teased this when I was talking to Neil Barrow, but the Sharpie doesn't, conversation doesn't stop with Neil Barrow. Are you guys trying to restore a Sharpie?
0: Absolutely. I could talk all day about some of the amazing stuff um, the faculty and students at Sound School have going on. And one of those projects that is, I think, in a tremendous story, um, involves one of my other teacher mentors, uh, Neil Geist. Neil was a student at Sound School back in its first several years. Um, I think he's an alumni from 88. Sorry, Neil. Uh, And part of his work there um, was they built a New Haven Sharpie called Tenacious. And so the students constructed that boat. Over the past few years, um, wear and tear have kind of caught up. And so now Neil is uh, the teacher heading our Marina Operations and Construction Program. He is working with our students right now to restore Tenacious Uh, to her former glory. So hopefully she'll be uh, sailing and we'll have that New Haven Sharpie back on the water this spring.
2: Sharpie's big uh, in in the uh, late 1800s and the the early 1900s, as I understand it. An example of trying to weave local history into the programming at the Sound School. Why do you care about oystering history and and, uh, why is this so important to the students or to teach the students? Excuse me.
0: One thing that I think we're very proud of at the Sound School is purposeful learning um, and, and giving the kids something that's part of their community and their history and their culture really helps them engage in what we're doing. Uh, so they see the authenticity of it. They see the impacts of the work they're doing, and they also get to see the context that work exists in. So knowing that they're part of this lineage, this legacy, that they're working to restore something in their own backyard and that they can see the positive impacts of that really makes the learning experience so much more valuable. You
2: guys call this an exciting alternative to some of the other area high schools. I'll give you guys each a minute. I'll start with you, Tim. Why should people go to the Sound School? Why should kids go there?
3: I think, I think the Sound School offers uh, unique opportunities for students who like to experience the learning. Uh, many times educators use the term hands-on, and our ASTE, our agriculture education model, is is learning by doing and, and that's exciting for young people. It's re- very rewarding. They see the effort, uh, you know, pay off and can experience it. It makes the learning more concrete.
2: And what about you, Peter? What do, what do you have to say about why kids should go to the sound school?
0: Um, I mean, I love it here. I, I, <laughs> I have been a part of sound school since I was in middle school when I became a uh, summer camp student here. It is really this unique little school on the water uh, that and we have this faculty and students that are united by common interest in what we do. Uh, so you really get to build relationships between the students and the faculty, and they get to be engaged in these hands-on learning experiences.
2: And everyday. real, br- and, and real oh. briefly, the point is that they do this way before their senior year of college, right, which is when they would normally maybe get this experience?
0: Absolutely. Um, So when my students were presenting, they won actually an undergraduate award for oral presentation. So they were the only high schoolers there presenting um, at a conference that is for professional researchers and undergraduate level research as well. So they get to be engaged in that. And our students every day here are learning how to scuba dive, how to sail, how to row and operate safely on the waterfront and all the skills associated with that. Uh, So there's very few places in the world where you have those opportunities.
2: You can see some of these students on our website. More information and photos of students diving in the reef ball projects on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. That was Peter Solomon, aquaculture coordinator at the Sound School, and Tim Weisel, a historian of the Connecticut shell fishing industry and former Sound School coordinator. Peter, Tim, thank you for joining us, guys.
3: No problem. Um, Thank you.
2: I'm Frankie Graziano. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. She did a great job today. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you guys for tuning in. Happy Friday.